All right, here is a concept for you that I'd love you to think about. How would you define beauty to a person who was born blind? I think that's a difficult concept, and, and, and I know that this has had to happen many, many times, of course, but, but how do you convey beauty to a person that's born blind? I mean, maybe you describe a beautiful person, you know, you could say they have blue eyes and red wavy hair and a white dress and pink toenail polish. I'm just describing Beth, by the way. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe I could do that. Uh, uh, but the problem, of course, with doing that is I'm using lots of things that that person's never seen. I'm using the colour red, I'm using the colour white, I'm, you know, like, uh, I'm using things that this person hasn't been able to see. So I think it's a difficult concept. Or, or maybe I describe a view, you know. Well, it's a beautiful view because there are so many trees and, and this person might say, but aren't there always trees? And you might say, well, well yes, but, but there's mountains as well. And they'll be like, but aren't there always mountains? And you'll say, not in Bundaberg. Um, anyway, but, but you might describe this thing that, that they don't have a concept to kind of grasp what you're saying. So how do you define this? Conceptual words are just, I think, difficult to explain. That becomes far more complicated when we are talking about God. You see, God is other. He is greater, more vast, more powerful, more, more unimaginable in many ways than we can actually get our head around. We are like, you ever been driving in the late afternoon and you didn't realize you had a really dirty windscreen on your car and the sunlight hits it and you're suddenly you're driving and all you can actually see are vague shapes? It, we've been there, right? It's not just me that's ever been in that place. No, again, it's just me. All right, um, so you get in that place and, and you can't really see and that's what the Bible says it's like with us and God. We, we see in a tarnished mirror, we, we get a vague image of God because the concept and the majesty and the might of who God is is so difficult for us to grasp. So if I was to ask you this morning, what about the concept of the glory of God? I wonder what you would say. How do we define the glory of God? I mean, we know a little bit about glory from an earthly perspective. We might say that, you know, if we receive an Olympic medal, that we then receive glory when we win that prize. Or we might say when someone died laying down their life for someone else, that it was a glorious way to, to die. Receiving an award or recognition for anything, we might say, is glory. But what about glory as an attribute of God? God is glorious. How do you define that? What does that mean when the Bible says God is glorious? Well, this morning we're going to start by looking at a passage with our verse, which I think is very helpful for us, if we're going to define the glory of God. So we're going to look at Isaiah 6, 3. Uh, if you have your Bible there, feel free to open up to Isaiah 6, 3. Now, you should... If you're familiar with Isaiah 6, this is where we have this incredible image of Isaiah being brought into the throne room of God, which we looked at a while back. But, you know, it's this incredibly majestic picture. 
He, uh, God is sitting on this incredibly large throne. The train of his robe fills the temple, signifying royalty and majesty. The angels are flying and singing, and we just have this incredibly powerful image of the might and majesty of God that Isaiah is brought into in that picture. And the angels who are flying and singing, well, they are singing this in Isaiah 6.3, and one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, uh, is the Lord of armies, his glory fills the whole earth. Now, little refresher, uh, if you haven't heard this, this is good for you to know, but the ancients did not use bold or italics to emphasize a point. They used repetition. Hence, as we've been working through the Gospel of John, at times Jesus has said, truly, truly I say to you, which is simply how they said, pay attention right now, this is important. Now, everything Jesus said was important, but when he wanted to bold, highlight, underline, that's what they did. They repeated a word to draw attention to its significance. Now, in all of Scripture, there is only one word that is ever used to describe God in a threefold repetition, and that is right here in this verse. Holy, holy, holy. So in all of Scripture, the holiness of God is the only attribute of God, the only descriptor of God that is given a threefold repetition. So why is that? Well, many people, and myself included, believe it's for this reason. Holiness means to be set apart, to be other. And God's holiness is a part of all of God's attributes. Let me explain. God's love is a holy love. It means it's a greater love, a more set-apart love. It's so much greater than we can ever love. So God's love is not just like love as we get it, but God's love is a holy love. It's that otherness of God. It's greater. God's grace is a holy love grace. It's a greater grace. His unmerited favor is so much greater than we can ever bestow. God's justice is a holy justice. It can't be bought or bargained with or changed because He is wholly just. He is perfectly just. Do you get what I'm saying? All the attributes of God are greater and bigger and more beautiful and more perfect and more incredible than anything we understand. So all of God's attributes are holy. So we read, God is holy, holy, holy. And His holiness fills the earth. No, that's not what it says, is it? God is holy, 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 and His glory fills the earth. So how do we describe the glory of God? I believe that the glory of God is the display of God's holy attributes. Right? The glory of God is the display of God's holy attributes. So all of those incredible concepts which are difficult for us to grasp, those holy things of God, His glory is those things displayed. Okay, does that make sense? Let me explain. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare 
the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. The heavens display, declare the glory of God. In other words, God's creative power and majesty, God's artistic heart which creates things of beauty. When we look up and we see the stars spread out across the night sky, when we look out over that mountain vista and expanse, whenever we see these things, it's constantly declaring the might, majesty, holy creative power of God. It's His holiness displayed right? So God's glory is His holiness displayed. When we see a a, a mum holding her newborn child and you see that look of love that that mum has for that baby, and in that instance you see a display of the love of God, His glory displayed in His creative acts. We see the holiness of God in those acts. When we see a criminal brought to justice, when we see vindication of a a criminal act that was done, when we see that occur, it speaks of the holy justice of God. It's His glory shown in so many ways. If we have eyes to see it, we can see the holiness of God displayed in His glorious work. Now, we've all got that in our minds. The glory of God is His holy attributes displayed. We are ready to tackle our passage for this week. So if you have your Bible there, we're going to open up to John 13. We're going to read 31 to 35. John 13, 31 to 35. When he had left, that's Judas Iscariot, we're just flowing on from last week. When he had left, Jesus said, now... The Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and will glorify Him at once. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you. Where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command, love one another, just as I have loved you you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As soon as Judas leaves the room, just after Jesus has declared that Judas will betray him, Jesus moves to the cross immediately. The time has come for the Son to be glorified. It's like the betrayal of Judas which puts into motion the human mechanics here. Judas is about to go find the religious leaders, bring them to Jesus. So Judas leaving the room kind of puts into motion the human mechanics of the crucifixion of Jesus. But Jesus knows full well that this is actually now the time has come for him to be glorified. Jesus has been pointing to the cross the whole way through the Gospel of John. He's been telling us that he will be lifted up. He's been telling us that people will be born again when they come to him. So all of that he's been building, building, building towards the cross. And now Jesus says, now is the time. It's coming when I will be glorified. Now, does that sound slightly confusing, that little first bit of the passage? 
Now the Son of Man is glorified, God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him and then glorify... Man, what's going on there? Well, of course, the triune God is going on. And although we can't fully get our heads around that, that's what we have to remember. Remember, God is one in essence. This is why we can say there is one God. He is one in essence, and He is three in person. This is why we read a passage like this and you go, oh man, that sounds so confusing. There's a lot of people getting glorified here, and it seems to be going back and forth and intertwined, and, and that's because we're talking about the triune God. One in essence, three in person. So we have this incredibly beautiful passage The Son will glorify the Father in what He's about to do. The Father will glorify the Son in Himself, so on and so forth. Now, some of you are just going to be okay with that and go, yep, it's the triune God and I'm good. Others will want to develop a mathematical proof to try and make all that work. Some of you are like, I just don't want to even think about it. It's too difficult, right? That's fine, but understand what's going on is it's the triune God. But what I want to zero in on this morning is this. If the glory of God is God's holy attributes displayed, then what is it about the coming death of Jesus that will glorify the Son and the Father? What is it about the cross that has Jesus make such a strong statement about the mutual glory of the Father and the Son. Well, we're going to look at a few things together right now, which the cross shows. Now, it shows many, many more things in this. I've pulled out five really quick things where the holy attributes of God are displayed in and through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Firstly, God's love. For God so loved the world. In the cross, we see the holy love of God, that other love, that greater love that none of us can ever have, the the full grandeur of the love of God is seen in the death of Christ, is it not? On the cross, we know unequivocally that the holy love of God would take the Son to the cross for a people who have out outwardly and completely and totally rejected God. Isn't that what the Bible says? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The very people who rejected Him, scorned Him, exchanged His glory for the glory of earthly things, that's what the Bible says. Those people, the holy love of God is seen in the fact that He would die to pay the penalty of their sin. The cross forevermore declares the holy love of God displayed in our Savior's sacrifice. The cross is the holy love of God revealed, hence to God's glory. Amen? The love of God. Secondly, God's holy grace. Now, the word grace means unmerited favor. Unmerited, right? means you did nothing to deserve it. You cannot earn grace. If you do, then it's not unmerited, and therefore it's not grace. 
by very definition, grace must be freely given by the one who gives it according to their own graciousness and is not dependent on the recipient. That's what the word means. It is unmerited favour. You cannot earn it. So, church, I ask you this morning, what have you done to earn God's grace? Anyone? Someone say nothing? If your answer is anything other than nothing, then you have not received God's grace and you're going to have to try and get to heaven through your own perfect works and never sinning once. Good luck, right? No, church, you did nothing, zip, zero, zilt to earn God's favour. The cross forever declares God's unmerited grace, His unmerited favour, His holy grace, which would pay the penalty of sinners by His own gracious gift. So the cross reveals the glory of the holy grace of God. Thirdly, God's holy justice. For God to leave sin unpunished would forever make God an unjust judge and place sin within the character of God. Now, I want you to think about this. There is no more terrible thought, is there, than almighty, all-powerful God if he was sinful like we are. Isn't that terrible? Think of the worst evil person you've ever known on this planet and give them unlimited power. Now, that's a terrifying thought. But no, see, God is completely holy, completely sinless, completely righteous. In him there is no darkness. So for God to maintain his character, for God to maintain, to be who God actually is, means that justice had to be met against criminals. Criminals have to pay a price, don't they? We've all broken God's law. And God's law says if you break it, the penalty is death. What a predicament. God wants to save a people forever to the praise of his glory. And yet those very people must be put to death or God is an unjust judge. What do you do? Well, God himself paid the penalty. That's what Jesus did on the cross. The full penalty of God, the full justice of God was poured out on the Son in your place. Right? The The beauty, the holiness of God's justice was maintained because Jesus paid the cost. So God's integrity, God's holiness, God's justice have all been kept pure because Christ paid the full penalty of our sin. Justice has been met. So the cross will forever declare God is just. The penalty was paid on the Son. All right? Forevermore, God's holy justice will be seen. Fourth, the Son's obedience. The perfect, sinless obedience of Jesus can never be more clearly shown than through the cross. 
that he would be willing to come to not consider equality with God something to be grasped, would be willing to come and submit himself to being born as a man, but even to death on the cross. The Father sends the Son, and the Son willingly goes to the cross in perfect obedience, right? The perfect obedience of the Son will forever be declared through the cross. So the holy obedience of God will be seen forevermore in the cross. This is how the cross keeps revealing glory. Fifthly, lastly, there are so many more. We could literally do this all day, but I just thought I'd pick out a couple of big ones. Um, But every time you think of the holiness of God, I guarantee you, you can see it in the cross. Lastly, God's sovereignty. From Genesis 3.15 on, God has moved everything according to his plan and timing to bring about the cross for our salvation and his glory. The Old Testament from Genesis 3.15 on is all about God promising our eventual salvation and redemption and God having a people for the praise of his glory forevermore. And the cross is the fulfillment of all of that. It is God bringing about in perfect timing his plan of salvation to declare forevermore the holy, sovereign, perfect justice of God. Right? The cross reveals that God is in control. The sovereignty of God is seen in the cross. All right, so, so we're getting the picture. If the glory of God is the holy attributes of God displayed, then the cross of Christ reveals so many of those holy attributes of God displayed in glory. And hence now, as Jesus contemplates the cross, he says, I'll glorify the Father, and the Father says, I'll be glorified in the obedience of the Son, and I'll glorify... There's just this glory because the cross will reveal the holy attributes of God. The cross is a horror beyond our imagining. Not so much because of the torture. I know that it was a horrible way to die, but many people died on crosses. But the bearing of the sins of the world the bearing of the wrath of the Father, the Father turning his face away, right? The true horror of the cross. But in many ways, the cross is also the greatest display of God's holy character and reveals the holiness of God to us. And that's why I don't mind that people wear a cross around their neck, not to display a torture device, but to point to God's single greatest act of glory that reveals his holy character. In verse 33, Jesus changes tact a little. So he's explained the glory that is about to come. And now he addresses his disciples as little children or dear children. Jesus is now speaking to his disciples as a father who is about to go away for a while and he's outlining to his children how he expects them to behave while he is gone, right? That's the tone of the language. I'm going to go away for a while and this is how you guys are to behave while I'm away, right? Any dads ever had that conversation with their kids? Yes. It's only ever me. I'm like literally the only one who's ever done anything. All right. 
Dear children, I'm with you for a little while longer. You will look for me, but where I'm going, you cannot come. And we get that too. When your kids are little and you're like, I'm going away, and they're like, can I come? And you're like, I'm sorry, you can't come. And of course, they're like, why? And you know, you're trying to explain it. But, but don't you also remember as a child hanging out, looking out the window, waiting for dad to come home from that trip or, or mum to come home from the weekly shopping with maybe a treat, like that expectation of their coming, right? Uh, and so that's the imagery that we have. But Jesus says, you can't come. But while I'm away, here's the command I give you. Love one another. Just as I have loved you. Oh, that verse hurts me. If we think about that verse even a little bit, it should make you uncomfortable right now. Love one another as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Love one another, in other words, with the holy love of God. Love one another with that incredible love that we said took Christ to the cross. He says, love one another like that. And it will bring him glory. Because we'll be known as his disciples. Right? Love one another like our teacher loves. Man, what a challenge. What does it mean to love one another like Christ has? Well, it's all-encompassing, isn't it? Firstly, he chose them. He chose them to be his disciples. He chose them to follow him. He chose to be with them. If we're going to love like Christ loved and be known as his disciple, then we've got to stop acting like these people in this room are simply people I've been lumped with, instead to think more about the fact that these are the people that Christ chose for me to be with and love. Right? These are your chosen brothers and sisters, chosen by God to be here, right here, right now, with you, to love like Christ loved, and so tell the world you're his disciple. These people aren't in this room by an accident. They're here, given by God, chosen by God, for you to love like Christ loves. Secondly, Christ put up with their mistakes and failures. Boy, didn't he? Oh my goodness, I love the honesty of the New Testament. And we did something stupid again, right? It's basically how you read the New Testament. And Jesus continually loved them forgave them, cared for them. Don't get me wrong. At times he got frustrated. We all will. I love those verses where Jesus is like, how long do I have to put up with you lot? Who's not been there at times within the church? Right? That's okay. It's okay to get frustrated. But did Christ ever turn his back on them? Never. Never. He got frustrated, but he forgave and he loved. This is the love of Christ we should have for one another, right? The kind of care, the kind of forgiveness, the kind of grace, the kind of willing to embrace that these are the people chosen by God. And the Scripture says 
we should consider one another's better than ourselves. Philippians says God didn't consider equality with God something, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, there is no act of humility that should be too hard for us to step down. There is no position of pride that we should cling to. We are simply all just servants of the King. And so we are to love fully, completely. you're sitting here this morning thinking that someone else in the church is not loving enough, then you're the problem. Let's put it that blunt. If you're thinking other people are not loving enough, then you're the problem because you have entirely missed the point of what Jesus just said. Love like I loved. Love like the one who loved the people who rejected him. Love like the one who loved the people who exchanged his glory for others. Love like the one who, while they were yet sinners, he died for them. That's what Jesus says. You are to love one another like. So if you're sitting there looking at everyone else, then you're the problem. You need to get the plank out of your own eye. Truth is, as we think of the love of Christ, it should only grow in magnificence as we continue in the Christian walk. Now, I remember the day of my salvation, and and some of you were young and you don't remember it that well, but as an adult to come to faith, oh, I can't describe to you the, the indescribable joy that was there in that moment. I knew my sins were forgiven. The shame was gone. My conscience felt clean and the love of God was a precious jewel to me which told me he had died for me and I was free. I was free indeed. And then I sinned as a Christian. And then I sinned again and again. And I kept having to come back to the cross. And I kept having to come back to his love and grace. And if one thing the last 20 odd years has taught me, it's this, the love of God was greater than I ever knew on that original day. Because the love of God is still carrying me day by day. Right? As we go on, the love of Christ should be nothing but bigger and grander and more magnificent than we ever thought. And Jesus says, as you experience that, as you experience more of his grace, more of his love, more of his forgiveness, more of his kindness, more of his care, that's how you are to love one another. As you grow older, O saint, in your faith, you are to love one another more because you know more of the love of God. As you've experienced more of his grace and forgiveness in your life, how can you not extend that to one another? You've been following Jesus for 20, 30, 40, 60 years. How much of his love have you seen that you do not deserve? Love one another. As we walk after him year after year, experiencing again and again love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, it's that love that Jesus calls us to as his disciples. Here's the truth. You and me, in and of ourselves, cannot love like that. 
His love is a holy love. It's greater than our love. You will fail. And you won't love the way we're meant to. So what do we do? The cross reveals the depth and holiness of God's love. It humbles our pride and strips away our self-righteousness. The cross reveals who you truly are and what it took God to pay the penalty of your sin. If you can't love others, it's not because they are unlovable, but because you've stopped loving Jesus. Right? If you can't love others, it's not because they're unlovable, but it's because you've stopped loving Jesus. Because if we come back to the love that he poured out on the cross, if we come back to the knowledge of who we really are and what it crossed, cost Christ, then it's very hard to look down at your brothers and sisters to feel like they're unworthy of love when you know just how unworthy you were when Christ died for you. Right? So we've got to keep coming back to the cross Keep coming back to the holy love of God displayed in glory on the cross of Christ. And as we come back to the cross, it enables us to love with Christ's love. When we come back to the cross, then Christ will be glorified in the way we love and care for one another. And finally, we have what I think serves as a beautiful bookend to our passage this morning. When we love with our love, when we operate out of our strength and not our dependence on Christ, this is what we see. John 13, 36 to 38 to finish. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Now Peter, of course, straight up is thinking, of course I can come wherever you're going. Lord, I'll be willing to get rid of my useless patrol and get a troopy. They can go anywhere uh, and I'll follow you, Lord, wherever it is you're going. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you can't come. But you will come later. Classic Peter. Now, let's not be too hard on Peter in this passage. He is a little unwillingly to be sure, but offering up his life as an act of devotion to Jesus. Something that many of us might have said over the years or even sung in songs, you know, Lord, I would die for you. I, I give you my life. It's a big difference though between singing that in this beautiful, comfortable room this morning than being there on that night with a crowd baying for blood who have just dragged Jesus off to be crucified. Something Peter's about to learn the reality of, right? Now, there's a beautiful irony here. Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? Remember, who is laying down their life for who in this scenario? Will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? Jesus is saying, no, Peter. I'm about to lay down my life for you. Peter, you're about to actually discover what the holy love of God looks like. Peter, you're about to see the cross of Christ. Peter, you're about to know that I conquer sin and death and see the resurrection. Peter, you cannot love like me until you have first understood my true love for you. 
Right? That's what Christ is telling Peter. Peter, you can't die for me yet until you first known that I died for you. You know, about three decades, we think, after this night. Now, this is not from the Bible, it's from extra-biblical material, but we think three, de- three decades, 30 years after this, Peter gets crucified upside down. And the early reports say that he was crucified upside down because he declared that he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way as his Saviour. Right? Once Peter had experienced the true love of Christ through the cross, then Peter was ready to offer up his life to Jesus. It could not come the other way around. You have to first experience the love of Christ before you can love like Christ. Right? That's what we see as a bookend to our passage this morning. The holy love of God displayed in the cross must be experienced by Peter before he can then love like that. So where are you at this morning? If you don't know Jesus, know that he declares his glory in dying for you to pay the penalty of your sin and offers eternal life forevermore when you give up this life and put your faith and trust in him. Or, if you know Jesus this morning but you are angry bitter, resentful, then you have let the world creep into your opinion of yourself, imagining you are entitled to things which you are not. Come back to the cross. Come back to the knowledge of the depth of your sin, the depth of the love and grace and humility of Christ that was willing to pay for it. Come back to the cross experience his love, and then offer that love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the heart of the glory of God that we see this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we acknowledge that we cannot love like you love. Your, Your love is holy. Your love is greater. And yet, Lord, when we contemplate the cross, when we contemplate the cost you pay, we contemplate our betrayal of you and and the way you loved us anyway. Lord, it brings us to that place of utter humility, utter recognition that it's not about us. Lord, in that place, filled with the love of Christ, we can truly love one another. Lord, protect us from feelings of pride or self-righteousness or whatever those things might be, Lord, and instead bring us back to the cross and fill us with the love of Christ. Lord, we ask this in your precious name. Amen.